The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. The degree to which you have a collective set of countries that say we don't see the world the way you Western nations do, and we have increasing economic clout, that obviously is going to become a bigger issue for European nations and Washington to contend with. That was Halima Croft of RBC Capital Markets discussing the increasing scope for the OPEC Plus group of oil producers to find common ground with the BRICS emerging market nations and what that might mean for commodities markets, climate change and geopolitics. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm George Hay, EMEO editor at Reuters Breaking Views. This week I'm joined by Halima Croft, head of global commodity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Formerly at Barclays, the Council on Foreign Relations and the CIA, Halima is a key authority on the oil market and the way it intersects with global geopolitics. We discussed why recent cuts by the 23-strong OPEC plus group of oil-producing states nevertheless saw oil prices fall. We also talked about the wrangling of the COP28 climate negotiations between fossil fuel interests and Western nations that want a quicker phase-out of fossil fuels. And we debated the scope for the BRICS group of emerging markets and OPEC states to align and take a different tack to the United States on these sorts of vital global issues. Listen on to hear our conversation. Hi, Halima. Good to have you on the exchange. Thank you for so much for having me on. Great. Well, um, we've got a lot to get through because uh, there's a lot going on in the world of oil at the moment. But um, uh, let's start with OPEC or OPEC Plus. So they announced a, quite a big cut or what seemed to be a big cut on November the 30th. But And usually, usually you'd think that that would have some kind of beneficial effect on oil prices. But since then, Brent crude prices have fallen from kind of low 80s to mid 70s. So first of all, what's going What's going on? Yes. <laughs> I think the real issue for OPEC is there's market skepticism about the actual number and whether you will have OPEC members really deliver on the 2.2 collective announced cut. I think Really part of the issue as well was really managing the message. So this was a delayed OPEC meeting. It was actually delayed by several days Mm. because they could not reach an agreement with some of the African producers on what their quota numbers would be for next year. It was sort of a continuation of the issues that we saw in June, whereby which they came up with this big announcement in June where the UAE got an increase in their quota for next year. But in order to square the books, the African nations saw their quota numbers come down. And the African nations had been underperforming their quotas, but it still was something that these nations were not happy with. They have investment plans. A country like Nigeria is looking to grow their production. And so they had not resolved those issues when they went into the meeting. And so they delayed it. And I think that was part of the the concern is that you didn't have an in-person meeting with all the OPEC members there And you had these announcements of voluntary cuts sort of coming out sort of one by one on the actual meeting day. And I think for a lot of market participants, they had already baked in the idea that there was going to be a cut. And then they were just sort of confused about the messaging. Yeah. So, I mean, to be clear, though, that it's this is not um, unlike other cuts that they've done in the past, the kind of coordinated cuts. This is this is how, how would you best describe it? A kind of rolling over of 
the big cut that Saudi had 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 to be doing on a voluntary basis, plus a requirement for others to do voluntary cuts. Right. That's 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 where we are, is it? That's where we are. So we have the Saudis rolling over their voluntary million. And then you had the Russians rolling over their voluntary and a sort of coalition of the willing of other OPEC plus members announcing their voluntary cuts. And so again, I think it was a, a different style of how they would deliver the message. Typically you're in Vienna, they announce the decision, and then you have a press conference where you have analysts and reporters really diving into the details. Yeah. And I think that adds to the credibility, frankly, of the message. But when you have something virtual, when you don't have the sort of announcement at one time of what's going to happen, and frankly, when you don't have the you know, questioning by the analysts and the reporters about the cut, I think people sort of came away from it being like, who's really going to deliver on this? Now, I think everyone expects the Saudis to do so. But some of the other members, I think it's kind of a wait and see approach. And it's in a time when people are focusing on the growth of non-OPEC production. U.S. production has outperformed expectations. You've yeah. had strong growth from Brazil, from Guyana. And so we're back to being concerned about can OPEC really manage the supply situation in the face of non-OPEC supply growth? Right. Well, that's interesting. So, I mean, would you would you say that the kind of the negative oil price reaction since this big announcement or kind of big quasi announcement on um, November the 30th. Um, would you say that the that it's down to do you think it's investors kind of not really buying what OPEC is saying um, or and how much of it is just also negative, you know, uh, outlook on the economy or the global economy? I mean, would, how would you kind of divide those two things? It, it's sometimes really hard to parse, but I think that there's a an element in there where you've had, you know, throughout the year, concerns about a hard landing, concerns about rate hikes. And at key points in the market, the Saudis have essentially come in and said, look, for every issue you might have with Jerome Powell, don't worry because we stand on the other side of Powell. Mm. We are the central bankers of oil. We are willing to come in and reestablish confidence. And that's really what we saw in June. I really saw that as a very strong confidence building measure from the Saudis. And they acknowledged at the press conference that it was a show me market and they had to deliver on those cuts. And I think that you've had, you know, a run up in prices that we saw again in the fall because of the fact that we were seeing inventory draws on the back of those Saudi cuts. And then we had the war, which led to another sort of return of geopolitical risk premium for a brief period. But then the market sort of pivoted back to the fact that you have this really strong non-OPEC supply growth and these concerns about China continue to be in the ether. And we didn't get, frankly, the big tailwind from the China reopening that we were expecting at the start of the year. Yes, we've had Chinese growth, but it hasn't been the gangbuster spectacular growth that a lot of people were forecasting at the start of the year. So it's sort of been underwhelming given where expectations were at the start of the year. And also you have issues about who is trading this market right now as you get to the end of the year. You know, the outsized you know, influence of the algorithmic traders, I think we're seeing as well in terms of these sort of swings up and down and 
a lack of you know real participants in the market. So I think these these add to the challenges that OPEC's facing in terms of market management. That's very interesting. So um, I mean, one of the things that was quite striking about um, the announcement um, on the November the thirtieth was <clears throat> it coincided with this suggestion that Brazil might want to join this group, yes. right? And it's and you know, I mean. Uh, one of the, one of the questions I was going to ask you was basically doesn't doesn't OPEC have a bit of a credibility problem? But um, uh, I'm interested to know what you think about that. But like, you know, if the answer is yes, it does a bit. Why does why do people want to join it? <laughs> well, I actually think that the Brazil announcement at first seemed like the potentially really bullish development when they when they mm. announced that Brazil was joining because. If you look at again a source of non-OPEC supply growth that is expected to grow over the next, you know, yeah. five years, you would look to Brazil and say this is, you know, one of the biggest sources of new supply coming on the market. So if Brazil is going to join OPEC Plus and subject itself to collective production management, I was like, this is a huge mm. win for OPEC. Mm. Right. So at first I was like, wow, this is a diplomatic triumph for OPEC. <laughs> but then it became a little bit again, I think this is where market participants got a little confused because then you had some Brazilian officials, you had Petrobras suggesting that Brazil was going to join OPEC plus, but not necessarily submit to collective production management. And then at the COP28 event, you had Lula essentially saying that Brazil was going to have an observer status in OPEC plus. So I think there's some head scratching right. again about Brazil. And again, I think that is what is the challenge when you don't go in person because you don't get these issues settled in terms of the information management at one time. I mean, it would have been very interesting to have had that press conference when they made the Brazil announcement and have really gone back and forth on the day about what does Brazil mean? But people were trying to sort of figure it out over several days. What does Brazil in OPEC plus mean? Does it make any sense for, well, what's, what's, the, what's the appeal for, from Brazil's point of view? Well, some people say that, you know, Brazil likes to join clubs and that this is, you look at a number of countries that have joined OPEC plus, it's a, you know, we think about it in terms of prestige on the world stage, you know, that is one you know key issue that people say it's about sort of consolidating ties to other nations in the global south. I know there's people don't always love that phrase, but mm. it's seen as an you know, Brazil is a really important leader of these countries, and so some people have said that that is a reason to want to join it. There's also in terms of information sharing that goes on between producers accessing, you know, what OPEC has institutionally in terms of research capabilities, like that is something that is appealing about joining. So I think there are a variety of factors, but again, like if Brazil were to join OPEC plus in a way that would have Brazil joining in these collective production decisions, again, that would be a big triumph for OPEC because you would be bringing a really important producer within that framework, just as it was so important that they brought Russia in that framework in 2016. Yeah. I mean, the way they described the view around Russia's entry was with the advent of shale, 
it was becoming more and more challenging for OPEC to manage the market without forging an alliance with another major producer like Russia. And so yeah. if they could ever get Brazil to join in a way that was material for Brazil's production policy, I think that would be significant for the group going forward. So I will be watching very carefully what Brazil's OPEC plus status actually is over the coming months and years. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, <clears throat> this this whole question about them joining OPEC plus kind of, which is obviously the, um, the, the wider bit of OPEC 13 original kind of uh, key oil producers like Saudi Arabia plus 10 extra ones like Russia who are kind of um, more at arm's length and they would be joining that. I think that's the idea. But um, the idea of um, that an enlarged OPEC kind of seems to come at the same time as this wider theme of the BRICS, um, the emerging market, yes. big, big company, big countries like Brazil, like Russia, um, China, India, South Africa. Now, they're, they at the same time are inviting a whole load Saudi of Arabia, other groups. Yes, exactly, yes. including Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran as well. They want to join their fold in 2024. So, what's I mean, what does that? What is the kind of big picture geopolitics of this? But you know, with uh, it's obviously all about. There's a strong commodities theme to this, but what is what is going on there? Do you think? Well, I think what's interesting and that the takeaway I had about the influence of this grouping of countries, this expanding grouping of countries, the, the non-Western, you know, mm. developing, you know, or if I you know, look at the Gulf, you know, very wealthy nations, but again, non-European, yeah. non-American. I really felt like I saw the influence of that with Russia's arrival in UAE at COP28 and Putin's visit to Saudi Arabia. And I, I remember I was on stage at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Forum and I was asked about the visit. And I said, you know, to me, it's, it's so striking because you have the view in the West on this war in Ukraine, but two thirds of the population in the world live in countries that don't support the Western view of this war. And the fact that you know, Putin is making this very public visit to UAE and to Saudi Arabia I think shows that while the West has decoupled from Russia, his ties to the BRICS and this greater potential BRICS grouping is only expanding. And when, when I got off the stage, you know, several, you know, officials from some of these countries, you know, came up to us and said, yes, you're exactly right on the Russia point. And I think that is a that's a challenge for, you know, Western policymakers going forward, especially as we look out to this this war in Ukraine that's entering now, you know, we, we are two years, you know, we're two years into this war soon. And it's it's a real challenge because I think Vladimir Putin has been given a you know important lifeline by his deepening ties. You know, look at India, look at the ability of Russia to reroute its oil sales from Europe to India and you know the ties that they have with China on their commodities as well. And so Two years in, Vladimir Putin does not look nearly as economically isolated as we thought he was going to be at the start of the conflict. Yeah, so it's extremely interesting. Isn't it? So, um, I mean, so where do you think, you know, the obvious you've mentioned, mentioned, we're mentioning all these different countries here. One we're not mentioning, the kind of elephant in the room is 
is um, the US. And um, so where, if you, how do you see this kind of plat panning out? Because, um, you know, is are we going to have this enlarged BRICS and OPEC plus kind of, you know, alliance? And would it, would it be kind of an explicitly anti-US oil alliance? And what are the implications of that? I, mean, I don't think it's necessarily going to come out as an anti-oil U.S. alliance. I mean, the United States does have, you know, strong ties to, you know, a country like India. You think about the, you know, state visit, you know, the, the big dinner that was hosted in Washington for Prime Minister Modi. He's a very yeah. important partner for the United States. But I think it's going to be, you know, to think about foreign policy for the United States, I think that it's going to be a challenge in terms of sort of managing the message. And I think there's a great quote where essentially they say that, you know, Europe's problems are the world's problems, but the world's problems are never Europe's problems, say Europe and the West. And I think you're, you're just really starting to see, you know, pushback on this, whether it be on these countries pushing back on our view of Russia, but we saw it at COP as well with particularly these African nations saying, look, you're asking us to make real sacrifices in terms of keeping our fossil resources in the ground, whereas you've not contributed the resources to help us, you know, with this energy transition, to help us, you know, mitigate the worst impacts of climate change that we're seeing in our countries. And we are not the countries that have contributed the global emissions challenge and so you know what what does this mean for us and is the west going to step up with its commitments and help us you know in terms of compensation for foregoing the development of these hydrocarbon resources i mean i think this is one of the the big themes that was really playing out at cop and so the degree to which you have a collective set of countries that say we don't see the world the way you Western nations do, and we have increasing economic clout, that obviously is going to become a bigger issue for European nations and Washington to contend with. Yeah. So, um, how do you how do you see the key relationship between Saudi and the US in um, in that context? Because Saudi is a kind of leading light of OPEC and OPEC plus being invited into this new into BRICS and uh, and it seems to be um, one of the key players trying to ensure that the, whatever comes out of COP is not um, particularly punitive to fossil fuels. But it does also equally have this historic relationship with the US um, where, you know, the, the effective bargain is uh, relatively cheap oil. And but the US gives them a kind of security um, safety blanket or whatever, however you want to describe it. And uh, like where, you know, how does that what happens to that relationship if you get this kind of more coherent BRICS and OPEC plus grouping? I mean, I find the US-Saudi relationship so fascinating. And my, my friend Rachel Bronson wrote this great book about the relationship called Thicker Than Oil, because we think mm. of it through the lens of the energy for security relationship. But also Saudi Arabia played such an important role in helping the US win the Cold War, not only in places like Afghanistan, obviously, but in places like Angola as well. And so to me, it's been very interesting to look at 
the change that you've seen with the Biden administration, because the Biden administration came back in, it came into office talking about a real reset in the relationship with Saudi Arabia, talking about sort of downgrading the relationship. Mm. And yet it's not only about trying to secure, you know, greater energy to lower prices, which I think they have not been quite as successful in, but they were really looking to have Saudi help them achieve their security goals in the region. And a, yeah. a big part of that was asking for the Saudis to normalize relations with Israel as part of this grand bargain. If we had had this conversation on October 6, we would be discussing a potential mega deal that was going to go down yeah. between Washington and Riyadh, yeah. which would not only have included Saudi-Israel normalization, but would have included you know, U.S. assistance with developing a Saudi civilian nuclear program, which would include new security guarantees. I mean, maybe not NATO Article 5, but something akin to what the United States offers to countries like Japan and South Korea, new you know, U.S. military support in terms of you know, military sales. It was going to be this sort of grand bargain deal. And that is something which has really been delayed. Someone said, you know, the question is, is it delayed or damaged by October 7th? Like, is there a path back to this deal in 2024? We just have to see, I would say, what happens with the war in Gaza. But that was really the, the first line casualty in terms of the diplomatic arena was this U.S. Saudi Israel deal. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, the obvious question heading into next year, which is everyone is talking about, is you've, you've talked about how the Biden administration have um, dealt with Saudi or approached that issue. Um, if we do get Donald Trump getting back in, you know, that that's a kind of quite, uh, in a way, it simplifies things, but in, in another way, it massively complicates things against the backdrop of this. BRICS, OPEC um, uh, grouping, and it kind of has all sorts of implications for what the US does in Israel, but also in Ukraine, presumably. I think Ukraine is the biggest immediate shift that we would see with a Trump administration. I mean, the Trump, the president, former President Trump has been very, very clear that he would look to if not immediately end significantly scale back assistance to Ukraine. And I think that the way that Ukraine has been able to stay in the game has really been because of U.S. and mil European military support. And if the U.S. lifeline was withdrawn, Ukraine's ability to wage this war you know, against Russia, defend itself against Russia, would be severely, if not fatally, impacted by that. And so I think that would be the, the really big, immediate, you know, global implication would be the war in Ukraine. OPEC, I think, is fascinating because President Trump spent the first couple of years really taking a tough line on OPEC. Anytime you would have your WTI prices, you know, above yeah. 70. Yeah. He tweet Trump about it. Right? You tweet about it. <laughs> and 
sometimes he would say that he had spoken to people in OPEC, but some people in OPEC could say we've never heard from him. <laughs> but then he became, I mean, he was fascinating because he went from being the ultra OPEC critic to when you had the COVID induced collapse in demand as well as the Saudi-Russia price war when they could not agree on a deal in March 2020 mm -hmm. and you had prices collapse, Donald Trump went from celebrating lower prices to essentially becoming the de facto president of OPEC and orchestrated the biggest collective reduction in the group's history mm. now when there was a moment there was a moment where mexico was not going to go along with the, the agreement you, know, you had lopez obrador running on i'm going to make pemex great again and he didn't want to <laughs> join on for this and donald trump was basically like don't worry about mexico get this done so he was mm. very very active in helping to get that deal across the finish line because he was very concerned u.s producers made it very clear to the White House that a collapse in oil prices would fatally, you know, strike a fatal blow against the triumphed American energy dominance strategy mm. of the administration. Yeah. And so Donald Trump really pivoted on, on OPEC. And so I, I would be fascinated to see how a return of Trump, what, what would that mean for the producer group? Because he proved to be quite flexible in terms of shifting his position on OPEC. But again, I think that the, the biggest story you would be watching would be what happens with Ukraine. And if, I mean, if there was a situation where he get he gets in, Donald Trump gets in and, you know, does what you suggest he might do, um, kind of withdraw from Ukraine substantially, what does that, I mean, obviously that has all sorts of political and um, human ramifications, but like from the, the, you know, from the commodities point of view, from the oil markets point of view, what, what happens then, do you think? I think the really interesting question will be, what does it mean for the sanctions architecture? Hmm. Because despite the fact that the Biden administration really worked to have ex, you know exemptions on, in the sanctions regime for energy. Remember, we disconnected Russian banks from the SWIFT payment system, but we did carve outs for energy transactions. And we sanctioned the Russian central bank. We did carve outs for energy. But the Europeans, they did their six package of sanctions where they essentially did the embargo on European foreign imports. There was some rerouting, obviously, because the price caps in Russian oil has largely stayed on the market. But these sanctions that are in place will still make it challenging for the Russian oil sector and gas sector, I think, going forward in terms of access to capital. And so that's always led to the question of if this sanctions regime stays in place, Russia's best days as an energy producer behind it or ahead of it. And I think that these, these sanctions still present a headwind in terms of the future development of that industry there. And so the question is, if you have a Trump administration, will they significantly scale back these sanctions in a way that Russia will be able to return to, you know, commodity markets on sort of the, the footing that it was on prior to the invasion of Ukraine? A lot of European countries say they are never going back 
to taking Russian oil and gas. But I, I think that that remains to be seen. That's fascinating. So, um, I mean, you mentioned COP there. Um, basically, uh, well, you seem to be kind of, um, well, there seems to be a, a kind of emerging theme whereby, and it's, it's fairly obvious why this would be the case, but the big OPEC and um, uh, perhaps even BRICS players are, uh, you know, I mean, it's, a, it's the likes of Saudi that don't want anything particularly aggressive on fossil fuels at COP. Um, for for obvious reasons, but um, I mean, going forward, like, what happens? I mean, are we just kind of getting this wider grouping of like uh, pro pro doing something meaningful on climate change and anti fossil fuels, and then the reverse in OPEC and BRICS? I mean, is that? I mean, maybe we've already had that, but like, it, it seems like we might get an even more that the divisions between those two things may be even more obvious. I mean, I don't know, apart, apart from UAE, obviously, because they're the ones, they're the ones hosting it. But um, what do you think? I think the Saudis would say that that's sort of an unfair characterization. I think the Saudis would say that they have taken the position that the focus should be on reducing emissions. Mm. And so that they are looking to how do you how do you decarbonize the oil? And so they are focused really on things like methane abatement. They're very focused on things like CCUS, carbon mm. capture. They are saying that's what you should be investing in. And again, the focus not on keeping it in the ground, but tackling the emissions. And so that is the way to ensure reliable access to energy, particularly for the developing world, where you have millions of people without access to energy, while at the same time, tackling the climate challenges. And so that has been the, the position of OPEC as a, an organization of Saudi Arabia. And then you have a, I would say that the kind of middle ground position taken by the UAE in terms of a willingness to talk about phasing down, if not phasing out. And I think that is really, I feel like it's very much represented by Dr. Sultan al-Jaber and looking at his career. There was so much focus on the fact that you have the COP president, a CEO of this national oil company, Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. But if you look at his career, he also started a renewables company, mm, Mazdar. Yeah. He's also yeah. the reason why ARENA, the International Renewable Energy Agency, is headquartered in Abu Dhabi. He's always been this person that has had sort of one foot in the renewables camp and one foot in the sort of traditional fossils camp. And so to me, I think it is uh, the phase down position of the UAE very much sort of is almost uh, the policy reflection of who Dr. Sultan al-Jabbar is. And then of course you have, you know, other countries in Europe, in the climate community that are saying, no, we need to have phase out. So that's the kind of that's the right. spectrum of views that you're seeing right now represented at COP. But which one, I mean, of the Saudi and UAE view, which one makes <laughs> makes more sense to you? I think that it's a question of are you going to, I don't think you're going to get agreement on, a global agreement on obviously a phase out. I think the question is, what is the path 
to trying to preserve 1.5 as the goal, which is becoming incredibly challenging. And so the question is, if we have countries pursuing paths in line with their national circumstances, is that a way of ensuring that we're not going to have perfect be the enemy of good? Now, people would say we can't afford to have that type of compromise given the scale, the climate challenge. Like, I think that would be a position you would have really made strongly by climate activists. But the question is like, what, what's the path to getting countries to take meaningful steps? And so if the kingdom takes the focus on, again, decarbonizing the barrel of oil, you know, with their circular carbon economy, like, are we going to have countries going down their own national strategies but trying to move in the direction of achieving, again, that seemingly elusive 1.5 goal. Okay, well, I think we've got through a lot of really interesting stuff there. Um, Just wanted to say thank you so much for being on The Exchange. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Taslich in London. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Catch up with more of our views at breakingviews.com and on the X social media site where our handle is at breakingviews. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover to the heart of U.S. politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. 